Hi, this is Mort Krim. I believe very much in following your dream, and I'm proud to be a part of the podcast, Follow Your Dream with Robert Miller. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream, and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream Podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream Podcast. I am Robert Miller, your host. My guest today is Peter Bright. Peter has had a very interesting journey from the depths of fighting in the Vietnam War to the heights of show business, working in Hollywood productions with stars such as Frank Sinatra, Dick Van Dyke, B. Arthur, Madonna, Dionne Warwick, and the Bee Gees, and we'll hear all about it. My featured song in this episode, and I always feature a song of mine in every episode, at the beginning and at the end, and I try to make it relevant to my guest or the subject matter, and in this case, the song is called Around the Horn, and it's from the album Made in New York by my band Project Grand Slam, and I chose this song because Peter has truly been around the horn, from Vietnam to Hollywood. So, Peter Bright, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Thank you, Robert. Good to be here. All right. So, you fought in Vietnam. I mean, I was one of the guys that did not fight there at the time because my my draft number was extremely high, so I got out of it. What happened with you? Did you get drafted? Did you enlist? How did that work? I was out of college for one quarter, and during that quarter in 1968, I got invited, 1967, <laughs> pardon me, I got invited to go to Vietnam. So you got snagged is what you're saying. Oh, yes, I did. And the problem back then, of course, is that if you got drafted, you knew exactly where you were going to go. So I guess it wasn't any surprise, was it? No, it was not. I mean, I could have upped for more years and maybe had more control of what I did, but uh, I didn't do that. I mean, for anybody that didn't live through that time, it was an unbelievable experience in the United States. So many people were against the war. I was part of that group. And yet, you know, if you got drafted, you had to go over there and you had to fight. And uh, I don't want to take you through the whole thing, but it, it sounded as bad as it could be. And I'm assuming that's the way it was. Was it for you as well? It was. There's no question about it. I'm very fortunate to have walked through it and walked out of it. Many of my buddies did not do that, unfortunately. Yep. Yep. But we all took the best care of we could with each other so that we would walk out of it. That's all you can do when you're in a situation like that. I mean, it's amazing to me. Here it is decades later, 60,000 American men and women, I guess, lost their lives in that war. And you say, for what? because Vietnam has turned into a tourist center. I mean, that's really what it is. It's a tourist destination at this point. Maybe it's not surprising. It has happened with other places, but I keep thinking, you know, what was it like for those guys like yourself that fought there and then to see it happen the way it's happened to turn into a tourist destination? What's your feeling on that? I think that's the best thing we could have as an outcome because it's moving forward. It's not holding on to the past. The past is there. 
but the forward is where we need to look and go. Good for you. Okay, that's a good attitude. All right, so somehow you came back from Vietnam. You were still alive, which is very good. And uh, you were in the radio business before then, right? And you came back into radio. Am I correct about that? That's true. I was in radio for a couple of years before I got drafted. And while I was in the Army, I managed to send back 31 two- to five-minute tape reports called Vietnam Periodical to the radio station in Cincinnati about how the war was affecting us, not points about the war, but just how it was affecting us while we were there. Give us a summary. What kind of reports were they? What, what, what were your feelings at the time? Well, there was the 1968 Democratic Convention in Chicago and all the Khazari that happened there. And uh, uh, we had reactions to that. In Vietnam, you had reactions. To exactly. That. Because we did get some news over there, not a lot. So was it a positive or a negative? Re- I mean, you know, in 68, there were all kinds of protests going on at the Democratic Convention. That's, I guess, what you're referring to. How did it, how was it viewed in Vietnam at the time? There were mixed emotions. There were those that were anti the war. There were those that were for the war over there. And uh, watching what was happening back in the States meant for some rather heated arguments between us when we were not out in the field. So it, it had mixed reactions. I can imagine. I mean, again, it's a surreal experience for anybody that's ever fought in a war, I'm sure. And that war was unbelievable. If you ever saw the movie, uh, what was it? Platoon. Platoon. Yeah, I couldn't think of how to pronounce it. Sorry. Do you think that something like that was was a uh, was an accurate description of what the war was like? Get out of the fucking wall! We're gonna fly! Let's go! Let's go! Fuck it! Fuck it! Fuck A good bit of platoon was accurate about how things were over there. Yes. All right. All right. Let's leave the Vietnam War behind. You came back. You're in. You're in uh, radio, and somehow you migrated from radio into TV, and you wound up in Hollywood. So tell us about that whole transition. Well, the whole transition came out of working on a show in Cincinnati after I got out of the army. And I was working with Roger Ailes, among others, who was producing the show we were doing. And while we were doing the show, the book Making of the President 1968 came out and Roger Ailes was suddenly fired from his position and gone. Now, let's let's tell everybody this is the same Roger Ailes that wound up starting Fox News. Am I correct? Exactly. A man who had no business in the news department. He was the P.T. Barnum, as I have said before of entertainment in the 20th century. And if he'd stayed in entertainment, he would have done a great thing. But it, as is, he went over and became a, a operator of news at Fox. And well, the rest of that story is Nobody history. can ever accuse Fox of being a news outlet. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> no way. Don't have to worry about that. <laughs> but really, he took it in a completely different direction than anybody would have ever thought. Um, yeah. So you worked with him for a while. What was he like back then? Dynamic. It was entertainment at that point. We weren't doing news. We were doing an entertainment broadcast every day. But he was doing two and a half hour specials, and I had to cut him down to 90 minutes to get out to the rest of the country. 
I got taught a lot real quick about how to take an interview and cut about eight minutes out of it and have it still make sense. <laughs> I'm sure you're right about that. It's no fun doing that editing, right? Well, actually, it is fun. It's a real challenge. And the more I learned and the better I got at it, the more I enjoyed it. And I enjoy it today. I, I do a lot of editing every day on audio. So it's very important. All right. Good for you. All right. So you were with Roger Ailes. Tell us what happened after that. I wound up going back to radio for a while, got into album-oriented rock radio in Cincinnati on a station, WEBN, that's still doing well there. And then I got tired of it. It just wasn't working anymore for me and my thoughts of what I wanted to do. You didn't like being a disc jockey? I did, but they took the heart out of it. Because back in the original days of album-oriented rock, you had five hours of radio and it was yours to do whatever you wanted to. That's right. It. And uh, then suddenly all the programmers came in and, right. and diluted everything down to a, a comic statistic versus something interesting. You know, communication is one of those things where you got to hit that kinetic little bump in the back of somebody's head. And if you don't do that, then you're wasting your time. I was, I was going to say, when I was in college, I was on the radio and it was a non-commercial station because it only went within the university. But we had so much fun on the radio and it was that album oriented era if you will of rock and roll and the disc jockeys including myself could play anything that we wanted and we could have as much fun as we wanted to because nobody was listening you know from outside so it was a wonderful era for me and in fact doing a podcast to me is like doing a radio show as i did it back in the day i get that that makes total sense to me and the nice thing is I can throw in as much shtick into this as I did back then. <laughs> World would certainly be boring without shtick. There you go. Okay. So I want to hear about the Hollywood experience. You went out there and you met a whole bunch of stars and you started working with them. Let's go through that. Well, I got out there and I immediately was doing either camera work or stage managing. And I found stage managing to be more engaging because I was dealing directly face-to-face -face with all these personalities and creating relationships with them. Dion Warwick's been a friend for years based out of originally stage managing a show we were doing back in the early 80s called Solid Gold. Welcome to Solid Gold, now in stereo. Starring Dion Warwick. Solid gold. I remember that show. Oh, yeah. Did very well. We had a good time with it. But I've always worn several or more hats than I can possibly wear at one time. But I do make the day rotate around producing, directing, writing, announcing, voiceovers, and all those types of things. It just depends on what's needed at the moment is what I'm going to be doing. I see. All right. So tell us about your experience with Mr. Sinatra. Met frank sinatra doing the gene kelly special in american in pasadena and gene had a big beautiful dressing room and there were like 20 some stars had come to pay tribute to him for this special and at the end of the final day before we taped the show in front of an audience i realized i didn't have a dressing room for frank sinatra of all people he couldn't be there for a rehearsal because of other commitments but he wanted to be there for gene kelly because they're old good friends so I went to Gene. Gene agreed to let me bring Frank into his big dressing room. It was more than a dressing room. It was a suite. 
So I go out to the curb to meet Frank's limo. It comes up. I open the door. I go, good afternoon, Mr. Sinatra. He says, it's Frank. And your name is? And I said, he told him Peter Bright. He says, Peter, good to meet you. He handed me his wardrobe bag and he stepped out of the car and we went in and there were hugs and kisses between the two guys. And I spent two and a half hours with them working through what Frank and he were going to do. He and Gene were going to do together. And then they did a wonderful show. Take me out to the ball game If we win, it's a shame Cause it's one, two, three strikes, you're out And we can't do that anymore But I would work with Frank many, many times after that, and we got along famously together. He was quite professional and very friendly. He seemed like a down-to-earth guy from what you're saying. Yes, he was. See, now everybody assumes that he was probably the scariest guy in the whole world because he was at the top of the show business pyramid, okay? He was the chairman oh, yeah. of the board, oh, yeah, right? Absolutely. And yet, with you, it was, hey, it's Frank. It's not Mr. Sinatra. Right. You like hearing those stories. Good man. Good man. I, I'm sorry he's not around anymore. I loved listening to him. Okay. So who are we going to talk about next? You did some stuff with Dick Van Dyke. Tell us about that. I did do a wonderful thing with Dick Van Dyke. We were doing a Disney special. And among the other people on the show was Linda Ronstadt. And uh, Dick was doing a dance number down Main Street you know, on Disneyland. We were having to shoot after the park closed, so we're shooting in the dark, or at least at night, not in the dark, as Main Street's lit up beautifully at night. And of course, we added to it. And Dick did a whole bunch of great dance routines in front of the Mickey Mouse Theater there on Main Street. But it took three nights to shoot what wound up about eight minutes on the television show once we edited it. But he was more than delightful. We laughed our way through those three nights together. And, and the performance that he gave was exactly the reference and, and the reflection of the work that he put into it, but the fun that he had doing it. It was amazing. You know, wonderful. If I happened to take one of my grandkids to see the new Mary Poppins movie, and mm. he's in that movie. And mm -hmm. I think he's 90 plus at this yes, point. Yes, he is. But he's just got that, that joie de vie that's, that still comes <laughs> from him. Yeah. That you could always tell on the television. Yeah, he's, he's, he's just terrific from minute one until he goes home. He's just wonderful. I may be circling the drain, but I've got a few steps left in me. So when they tell you that you're finished and your chance to dance is done. That's the time to stand, to strike up the band, and tell them that you've just begun. So when lives are... You know, I always remember the story when he did the Dick Van Dyke show about how he and his wife, Mary Tyler Moore, on the show had to have separate beds because at that time, the censors didn't allow for a husband and wife even to sleep in the same bed or to imply that they were sleeping in the same bed. Yeah. Yeah. That, 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 that was the, uh, Aussie and Harriet days too. That's, right. <laughs> That's right. Now you had some other experiences with the census, didn't you? With the author, tell us about that. I worked on an episode of Maud, and we shot the whole show 
And we get done shooting the show, the audience is released, and then we have to get notes from the producers in case there's something we need to reshoot. But along with the producers are the censors. Back in those days, Practice and Standards was their, their title in the, in the network television world. And they could overpower anybody else in the production if they thought something had to be changed. Now, B had this wonderful line she gave, I'm going to suck your blood. <laughs> she gave it to her character husband. And we get done shooting the show and we're standing around on the set kind of being glad it's Friday. We're both going to get to go home after a long week. And then I get called over to the producers for a note. Now, normally the notes were just given spoken out loud across the stage to us, but they wanted to talk to me alone. And I looked at B and she looked at me and I said, uh-oh. And she said, go see what they want, Peter. So I walked across the stage to the producers and I said, so what's up? And they said, well, her line, I'm going to suck your blood, has to be changed to, I'm going to drink your blood. And I started laughing because it just took the power out of the line. It ruined the line. But now I need to go back over to B and tell her. Well, I told her and her reaction was anger, not at me, but at the, at the censors. And uh, she did deliver the line one time for one take. I'm going to drink your blood. But every time I would see her after that, and we'd saw each other quite a few times, both socially and working together, the first things out of our mouths before hello to each other was, I'm going to suck your blood and you can't <laughs> say suck on CBS. Children of the night. What music they make. When you say something like this now, it, it almost sounds like it's it's impossible. How could this have happened? And yet it sounds childish. It, it sounds ridiculous, but that yes. was the era. Okay. Yep. In that era, you heard about these things all the time. Well, that episode was shot in 1976. There were just the three primary networks in PBS, and there was really nothing else available at the time. And yet, I don't know if it was exactly at that moment or a little bit afterwards, you had shows like All in the Family that tackled all kinds of subjects, and they let all of that go, okay? And it was a gigantic hit show at the time. Oh, yeah, definitely. But even Archie Bunker couldn't say, I want to suck your blood, huh? <laughs> <That's right. laughs> they wouldn't let him do that. Hey, hey, hey. You're in my chair, Mort. So? I want to sit in my chair. Oh? You're going to get out of my chair? No. Oh, Lord. If you don't get out of that chair, you know, I got a way to make you very, very upset. Archie, please. Stay out of this now, Edith. Come on, Mort. Last chance. You're going to get out of there? Get lost. All right. So you also had some experiences with some other musical stars, the Bee Gees and... Madonna and Sting. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about some of that. Well, the Bee Gees was an amazing special we did, Spirits Having Flown. And it was being shot live, a concert being shot up in Oakland, California. But we were shooting it not on tape visually because high definition hadn't come in yet. But the highest film capacity is 35 millimeter. So the Bee Gees and Robert Stigwood and my director friend Lou Horvitz said, okay, we'll shoot it in 35 millimeter film. 
15 35 millimeter cameras were set up to shoot the concert and the cinema photographers who normally just talk to a director face to face before shooting something were put on headphones and getting direction from the director like we do in television but these film people weren't used to it but they adapted to it quickly the footage is gorgeous just magnificent not to mention the performances of the entire bg group because they were all still alive at the time right but unfortunately it got transferred to standard television from the 525 line resolution days and not in high definition the film could be transferred but it'd be a couple of million dollars probably to be able to get it retransferred to high def and re-released but it was a fun fun week in oakland with those folks I mean, 15 cameras, that's probably more than you get at the Super Bowl, huh? Uh, well, no, but nonetheless, it's it's a lot of cameras, particularly <laughs> when they're 35 millimeter cinema photography type situations. It was quite unique. Listen, they were a great group when they were around, and it's a, it's a tragedy that uh, two of the brothers, of uh, the three, um, have passed away. Well, Barry's the only one still alive. Yeah, it, it's a tragedy, but he, he has done so many things. I mean, the group was great, but he has written so many things and done so oh, many uh, duets and the like. He, what a fantastic artist he is. Okay, another fantastic artist you work with, Madonna. Tell me something <laughs> about that. I have a great story about Madonna. We're doing Solid Gold. She was going to do Like a Virgin on the show when it was a brand new hit. She was just becoming a big hit internationally at the time. And she came out and did her bit. She had a very skimpy pink outfit on, but she's dancing around like a maypole, the entire piece of music. And at the end of it, in front of an audience in the studio, she starts humping this pole. All right. So it wasn't a maypole. It was a stripper pole. <laughs> yes, definitely. It was a stripper type pole. And uh, I went up to her at the end. I said, it's gorgeous we love it but could you do another take and not hump the pole at the end she gave me a very quick dirty look and walked off stage up to her dressing room i'm thinking oh no i need her in this show 
So I thought, I'll go to my guy that makes fog on the stage and tell him to have a lot of fog ready for the end of the show, end of the song. I'll give him a cue when I want her completely fogged. So in case she humps the pole, we won't see it. I waited 15 minutes, gave her time to cool off, went up to her dressing room and knocked on her door. And she did answer the door, still in costume, which told me right away, she's going to do it again for me. And I said, uh, you going to go again? She said, yes, I'll come down and do it again. But she made no promise about how she would end it, humping the pole or not humping the pole. <laughs> but I was ready to fog her out. She came down, she humped the pole, but we never saw it on camera because you could only see her from the bust up in the shot. And she got completely fogged out. That piece, by the way, is still available online if you look it up. Like a virgin. I want to suck your blood and hump your pole. <laughs> <laughs> you've had an interesting career for sure. Okay, you've written a memoir called My Overdue Book. Tell us a little bit about that. It's an autobiography called My Overdue Book, Too Many Stories Not to Tell. It's both available as a hard copy book on Amazon. And it's also on Amazon Audible because I did do the audiobook version of it. Okay, And good. they're both getting good response, particularly the audiobook with this pandemic period, because audiobooks are through the roof these days. Right. Good for you. All right. We've been talking here with Peter Bright. Peter has had a really interesting career from Vietnam to Hollywood. Peter, I want to thank you so much for being on the podcast. And, uh, we're going to listen now to the song that started off uh, the podcast called Around the Horn. Thank you so much for being here, for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band, projectgrandslam.com and at the pgsstore.com. <laughs>